The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where film adaptations of comics continually tried to take certain storylines that were beloved by fans from the printed version and adapt them for the big screen with varying results, two men decided to talk about it. This is Totally Super. Hi, welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And before I say anything else, I'm going to start this with a plug. I'm going to start this with an advertisement. Uh, this podcast is going to How be released. How dare you, uh, sir? How dare you? Pod- this podcast is going to be released uh, on Friday, uh, October 25th. So this advertisement is only good for two days or if you're listening to it next year. But can I say that uh, um, is, if you have an opportunity and you are anywhere within two or three hours of Mannheim, Pennsylvania, um, go check out the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. Uh, I got to say, I live in Maryland. I pass an excellent, a world-renowned Renaissance Fair, the Maryland Renaissance Fair. Um, I pass that one to go to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, not just because one of my very best friends and co-host of the show, Arthur Rowan, is responsible for quite a lot of the content of the fair. But even above and beyond that, it is for... Like really for like what's like twenty five bucks for adults and like like fifteen bucks for kids something like that so like for really a, a the the price of going to see an IMAX film uh you get a day's worth of of storyline fights laughs um excellent food uh just a, a really really excellent time I have to give uh absolute kudos uh to you uh, Sir Arthur for for the work that you did and the work that you've done for the fair for, uh, for years and years, but of above and beyond that kudos are nothing. I think a, a full on ad is what I want to give to this thing. If you, if you like that sort of thing, even if you don't, um, this, this is really a, an, an excellent experience. And that's uh, one of the reasons you have not been as available as normal and why the show has been a little more, you know, intermittent, uh, has beca- been because of the work that you did on that. And I didn't get to see you, uh, when I went, but I got to see the work that you've done. I got to see the fruits of, of your labors and the labors of many. Um, and I and my family had an excellent time. And I hope that anyone who wants one last weekend, because this is the last weekend coming up, or if it's 2020 and you're coming into the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. Um, really, it's 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 an amazing experience. So that's my ad that I'm giving for the Pennsylvania Aww. Renaissance Fair. But well done, sir. Well, th- thank you very much, sir. I'm really glad that you and your family enjoyed it. Uh, and I am <laughs> glad that all of the work that kept me away from the podcast for a while, uh, you hopefully found worth it because you had a good time. So thank you, sir. Well, my, my, my favorite thing is, is that right as we're getting to the final joust, spoiler alert for the, for the final joust, right as we're getting to the final joust, of, which every Renaissance Fair like has a joust at the end. But this one like always has like fireworks and explosions, which I've never heard of happening anywhere so else. So much unnecessary pyrotechnics. And we got, we got a new um, pyro uh, guy this year who brought in a whole, a whole new level. And, uh, and Arthur texts me and he, and he says, hey, I know you really, really like... Star Wars episode three and knowing that because he was writing it when we were recording the show and you know we talk about Star Wars offline a lot he goes I I, gave, I put something in just for you and so I'm like what I don't understand what could it possibly be and at one point a character turns around and goes you underestimate my power 
And I, I also it. love that you were you were so touched. You were like, "Oh, you put an episode three reference just for me," and I was like, "Yeah, who who else on this earth would appreciate an episode three reference?" Oh, how dare you, sir! Uh, ha, ha, ha. How dare you, sir? Um, speaking of third episodes, moving into what we're talking about. Speaking of third oh, episodes, once indeed. upon a time there there was a man named Simon Kinberg who was tasked to write a film adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga. He decided that the story would be that Professor Charles Xavier went into the mind of a young Jean Grey who is responsible for all sorts of unmitigated disasters and using his psychic powers would lock behind a psychic wall her access to her unbelievable power, which includes, among other things, going up to people and turning them into dust. Eventually, because of a trauma that happens to poor Jean, uh, where she un she she accidentally kills someone who's beloved to her, she goes on a rampage where she decides to kill lots and lots of people, ending in a big fight between Magneto, sort of inexplicably Magneto, who is going from a commune where he spends all of his time with a bunch of a, a bunch of of superpowered mutants and. Uh, in keeping them away from society and then eventually clashes with the X-Men. And the name of that film is X-Men The Last Stand because Simon Kinberg, the writer and director, and I'm sorry to step on the 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 what you're about to do, um wrote X-Men The Last Stand. And that it's worth I did no- not know. And they went and they went back to say, "You know what? You did such a great job the first time. Come on back and do it again." I know. Come do X-Men The Last Stand. He says, you know, it's so funny because of the Dark Phoenix saga. I have an idea of what that should be. <laughs> wow. Stop me if you've heard this one. I'm, I'm sorry. That actually does strike me as extraordinarily. It, it really just it gives you insight into how the the Hollywood machine works that because of connections and networking and things like that, somebody who wrote a story that everyone agreed was just terrible uh, with X-Men The Last Stand can suddenly find themselves in a situation where they are given the exact same movie storyline to write again, and somehow the studio is like, yes, no matter how many other screenwriters out there, no matter how many screenplays we have no doubt received that have this storyline in it, this is the guy we want again. Well, and I've I've listened to, our, to interviews with this guy. This guy seems like a super nice guy, like a super nice guy. But he wrote Triple X State of the Union, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I kind of liked, X-Men The I Last like Stand, one, yeah. Jumper, which is terrible, Sherlock Holmes, which is okay, but mostly because of Downey, uh, something called This Means War, directed by McGee, so I'm sure it's not good. He wrote Days of Future Past. Um, and if okay, I look that, at it, and that is a feather in his cap. And, and it, is, it is really good. I'm looking real quick. He is story by and screenplay by. So, okay, he did really well with Days of Future Past. We'll give it to him. Then he wrote uh, the Fantastic Four movie that was directed by Josh Trank, which we have not yet reviewed. Um, or, or no, we did review that one, didn't we? That's the one that we did. Oh, review. yes, we, we did. Re- yeah. Um, uh, we didn't review the two uh, successful ones. Uh, he wrote that. Then he wrote X-Men Apocalypse. And they're like, based on this very spotty, this very, very spotty record of writing, would you like to rewrite this film that you wrote before? That was, And, and it, I just don't understand how at some point somebody didn't say, hey, Simon. Um, but this time they're like, hey, you know what we should also do? Would you like to direct? Would you like to direct this film as your... I mean, it's possible that maybe directorial Simon debut? His- 
Maybe Simon made his case that he was like, look, the story that I wanted to tell in X-Men The Last Stand, the studio completely like took out of my hand, so let me do it my way. And then it turned, you know, so they were like, okay, let's give this guy a shot. But yeah, yeah. it does, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big risk. You know, I, I it's really interesting because I was listening to another podcast that was talking very much about uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi. And they, no, sorry, it was Star Wars Episode One. And they were talking about watching the interviews with the craftsmen, um, the digital craftsmen behind Jar Jar Binks. And they were talking specifically, if you look at these interviews done before the movie comes out, they're so excited. They're so thrilled. They've been able to do this thing. No one's ever been able to do to have a, a, a character, a digital character that exists within a film that interacts in such a way. They were so excited about the fact like there's a scene where Jar Jar is walking arm in arm with Boss Nass, where Boss Nass like puts his arm around Jar Jar. And they were like, you've no idea how difficult it was to write, you know, Boss Nass is a program and Jar Jar is a program and to have one put the arm around the other was just this amazing accomplishment that they that they pulled oh, yeah. off. They were in so that excited. aspect, Jar Jar was a total technical marvel. And and then they moved on from that conversation to a conversation about the last season of Game of Thrones, which was also, you know, hit and miss and and a lot of people have have derided and they said the same thing. They said, what is a bummer is you watch the, the interviews and the behind the scenes of these people who are so excited about what they're doing. And what caught me when I have listened to interviews with Simon Kimberg and stuff, this is a guy who loves this material. And mm-hmm. he is really, really excited to be doing this movie. And the, the new cast members of this film are really excited to be doing this movie. In particular, Sophie Turner playing Jean Grey. I mean, this was her shot. Like, this was like, yeah. you are you, you are the cover. You are the new Wolverine. Like, Wolverine is mm-hmm. gone, and we're putting you on the cover of the X-Men now. Um, so before we go into anything that we're going to say here, um, I want to acknowledge that making a film is hard. Because I know. I've done it. I'm on my fifth now. It's hard. And you put all your time and your heart and soul into it. And I, God knows the Trekoff movie. Um, which I did a, a ton of work for, and just the it, it arrived with a thud, and and it breaks your heart a little bit. And movies like this, you see the enthusiasm of some of the people involved, and and knowing what the stuff we're about to talk about, it is, I I we have to be honest because that's what we're doing, but. It bummed me out because Simon Kimberg was so excited about this. Mm. And it's like when I watched the interviews with Ryan Johnson done before you watch the behind the scenes of Last Jedi and you see just the, the giddy smile on this dude's face while he's making this movie. He thinks he's making this film that's going to be, you know, he, he doesn't care if it's loved. That's not his personality, but he's 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 not expecting what's coming and it's a, it's, it's a bit of a bummer. So I just want to want to throw it out there that, that Simon Kimberg seems like a, a good guy. And, you know, to be able to write a feature film and direct a feature film takes it even competently takes a certain amount of talent. So, you know, we, unfortunately I think we come to bury him, not to praise him. 
Uh, but he is, you know, a decent dude with a modicum of talent. So let's just put that out there ahead of time, shall we? Sure. That being said, is this the first time you've seen this film? Uh, it was, yes. Why did you skip it? Uh, mostly because of the uh, uh, because of the reviews. Um, the reviews were mostly negative, and uh, if I remember, based on when it came out, too, I kind of had a little bit of superhero fatigue. Like it's sort of. I mean, I don't know if it was. I can't remember if it was exactly up against uh, Endgame. Uh, I mean, it probably wasn't, but Endgame also was such an epic film that it kind of left an impact for months afterwards and before in the Endgame sense of was no no on April tw- April 26th this one came out um on June 7th so we're talking yeah that's, that's literally a, way a month too soon. a month and a, a month and a week and we all knew that that 2 weeks later Spider-Man was going to be coming out so yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, so part of it was it was released into a summer that was already dominated by bigger titles. Uh, and the other part of it was, you know, the general the general feedback I was hearing was not was not great. So I was like, no, nah, this is one I can wait for to see on DVD or, you know, streaming. Yeah, it's worth noting that this is, you know, one of the first films that we have skipped in the theater since we started doing the show. And we had already been reviewing uh, the X-Men movies. We, we had already reviewed the first three X-Men movies. We were started to review X-Men First Class literally like like five weeks after this film came out, um, mm-hmm. like the series that we're on right now. And yet... You skipped it. I almost skipped it. I saw it in its last week of release. Um, we had a night come up. I wasn't going to go see it, and we had a night come up and become available. And and we were like, okay, quick, let's go. You know, let's go and check it out. And it was already in a you know in one of those theaters that like you know, we you've been to my house. Well, I have a, I have a projector in my house that that you know they're not that expensive now. You can get them, and so I've created a semi movie theater experience in my own basement. And the given that there was nobody else in the theater with us, we kind of had the same experience we could have had just a few weeks later at home. That's how small the theater was in just probably three weeks after this film came out. So, so you are not alone in having skipped this film. Uh, this film came out with, um, like I said, on June 7th, a budget of $200 million, uh, came back with a box office of $252.4 million. Um, and that is, I'm just checking to see if that is worldwide. Yes. So it made $65 million in the U S which is remarkable. (laughs) Like it is, it is insane how little that is for a movie like this. Um, 252, we always say, you know, the, the over under is that you have to make 200, uh, you have to make two times what the movie makes. So if it costs 200 to make, then, and we'll talk about that. Um, it needs to make 400. So we're talking a movie that incurred a loss of $150 million, which is crazy. So those are your stats. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, can you give us the new plot for X-Men? The sure. La- I mean, Dark Phoenix. The uh, So the plot. The story opens with a flashback to the 70s. A young Jean Grey is in the car with her parents, arguing over a radio station when the car suddenly collides with a truck. Jean is rushed to the hospital where she meets a young Charles Xavier who tells her that her parents are sadly deceased but that he can provide for her at a school for people with gifts like she has. Flash forward to the early 90s where it seems like mutants are finally accepted by humanity. The space shuttle Endeavor is damaged by a solar flare on one of its missions, prompting the president to ask the X-Men for help. They take the Blackbird up into space and rescue the astronauts, but not before the strange force that is definitely not a solar flare flows into Jean. The crew returns. Raven has an argument with the professor, claiming he's sending his X-Men 
into greater danger to satisfy his own pride and ego. Jean, although initially feeling fine, soon discovers her powers are magnifying in a way that she cannot control. Meanwhile, elsewhere, aliens who have the ability to shapeshift and whose planet was destroyed but, and this is important, are definitely not Skrulls, land on Earth. <laughs> It's clear that they're looking for Jean and the power that is inside her. As Jean's telepathic power grows, Xavier realizes she's breaking down the walls that he placed in her mind when, he, when she was younger, as he says, to protect her. Behind one of these walls is the startling realization that Jean's father is alive. Feeling betrayed by Charles, she flies off to find him. The team suits up to follow her. She meets her father and learns that he wanted nothing to do with her after the car crash. Reading his mind, she realizes that her powers somehow caused it. It sends her into something of a fragile state, made worse when the X-Men show up fully suited up and adopting something of an aggressive stance. A bunch of cop cars roll up, which Jean telepathically destroys, forcing the X-Men to try to subdue her. During this brawl, Jean, again losing control, hurls Raven away and impales her on a broken beam. Jean flies off horrified, and Raven dies. Her death drives a wedge between Xavier and Hank McCoy. Jean, desperate for help, travels to an island sanctuary for mutants, led by Magneto. She tries to tell him what happened, but not before the U.S. military shows up. She beats them back and flies away. Shortly thereafter, Hank McCoy lands the Blackbird at the island and tells Magneto that Raven is dead. The two swear revenge on Jean, uh, Magneto no doubt because only he is allowed to try and kill Raven, in case we've forgotten Days of Future Past. Meanwhile, the shapeshifting aliens make contact with Jean and tell her they'll help her control her powers, which literally created life in the universe. Through his contacts, Magneto learns of Jean's location, and Charles learns the same thing by telepathically eavesdropping on Hank. All groups meet outside a house in New York City. Magneto's mutants to kill Jean, Xavier's team to save her. There is a major battle during which Xavier manages to get through to Jean, who desperately wants the power removed from her. The alien woman agrees, and as she starts drawing the power out, reveals that she will use it to kill all life on Earth. Cyclops knocks her back with a laser blast, but shortly after everyone is disabled, uh, shortly after that, everyone is disabled by a government mutant neutralization squad. They load everyone up onto a train and depart. The entire gang of aliens attacks the train, trying to get to Jean and her power. We have what is essentially the final battle, as the mutants band together and fend off the aliens, until Jean wakes up and goes full X3 god mode on them, breaking them all apart into Thanos' Infinity Gauntlet dust. The only one that remains is the now overclocked head alien, who also has some of Jean's Phoenix Force. She crows that Jean can't control the power and can't defeat her without killing her friends. Jean grabs the woman, flies up into space, and goes supernova. The alien threat is gone, but so is Jean. Coda. The school is now renamed the Jean Grey School for Mutants, and Hank is the head professor. Charles goes to France in something of a shameful retirement, feeling the weight of what his treatment of Jean caused. But his old friend Eric shows up, offering him a new home. They play one final game of chess, as up in the sky we see the brief glimpse of a firebird. Fiend. So... X-Men Dark so, um, this you, So this movie yeah, deals with a... It's interesting, the storyline of this, and the big theme of it. I wanted to talk a little bit about it because I think our general sense of this is they didn't quite do it right. Um, then the next follow-up question is, okay, well, how do you do this right? And the storyline that we're talking about here is something that's really crucial to the mutant arc in comics in general, which is not just, okay, I'm afraid of all these people who are afraid of me, but also, I have this part of me that I do not like, that I feel I cannot control, and that I'm scared what it will turn me into, or what it will make me do. Uh, to go uber-philosophical, there, there is a duality in every human being. We all of us have what we sort of consider our true, deep selves, and then we also have this other self that is in us that frequently leads us into places 
that we don't want to go. Any addict is incredibly familiar with this duality. And this storyline is playing up that duality on a large scale, especially when you consider, okay, what if this thing that is part of me doesn't just threaten me, but also threatens everyone that I care about? Uh, the the strength of this storyline, uh, storylines like this hinge completely on how well you capture that person's internal struggle and how well you are able to relate to that person's internal struggle as they're going through that. And in general, I found that because it's so much of an internal struggle, usually it's a whole lot easier to do in written form, books or comics, than it is uh, on film, especially when you've only got two hours to go. I think that that's a fair assessment. I think that um, there are some, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of stories like this, but I wonder how many stories like this existed prior to the Dark Phoenix saga in uh, in X-Men, at least in popular culture, because every time these days when there is a story like this, someone has to throw in that they're going Dark Phoenix on you. Um, yeah, because yeah, Claremont's is... Claremont's Dark Phoenix story, Dark Phoenix storyline is heralded as like one of the top five arcs in the history of Marvel Comics, practically. Yeah, it's worth. Like, I, I don't want to say it's worth noting. I'm so self conscious about it now. If you look <laughs> back and you go, you go X Men number one that came out in the '60s had Jean Grey as not only a main character but the the romantic tension between Jean and Scott was there from X-Men number one. She was the purest of good. She was Superman level, just pure good and and beloved and original, one of the original X-Men. When they amped her up and made her Phoenix and brought her in with the powers of the new X-Men, um, when they you know finally made it on the scene, you know, being Storm being the most powerful of them, both Wolverine and all that in, in giant size X-Men one, uh, they eventually powered her up not too long after that, and suddenly you had her as this super, super powerful being, but she was still Jean. She wasn't actually Jean. It's a really long story. The actual Jean was at the bottom of the ocean, discovered later by the Avengers when they formed X-Factor, but that's another story. The point being that they took this character that you loved and they powered her up, but she was still her. So when that character turned, I, it's hard to like put out what that would be like. It would be like watching friends and then suddenly Rachel kills Monica <laughs> and and they're like what and in the comic she goes bad she kills people she destroys the entire planet and you show it happen and she can't control what she's doing she goes full-on villain for a few issues until finally you realize that that's there are two personalities within her, and then she sac she sacrifices herself right in front of it's Scott who's able to pull her out of herself, and then she sacrifices herself um, to save everybody. You're right. I, I think wonder it exists if in the, the world. I think the and I think part of the the impact of that is two things. First, this is a woman who this is a character who we have followed for twenty years. There are people who grew up with this woman. It's it's not just Rachel killing Monica. It's Harry Potter suddenly joining Voldemort. Um, and added to that, I think you touched on something there. Jean Grey started as she was the purest of the pure. She represented a fall from grace of the very 
very best of us. And that's always doubly difficult to take. And maybe if we had had Jean Grey with us for, say, seven films, and then there was this sudden fall, that would be one thing. But unfortunately, uh, we only got this iteration of Jean Grey one film before, and even then, she was an ambiguous character because she was already wrestling with something inside herself. Like, instead of just having Jean Grey as just Jean Grey, a likable character unto herself for a couple films, the first time that we saw Jean Grey was already doing the groundwork for laying Dark Phoenix, because she was, we, we met her in a state of conflict. So it's harder to empathize with her in that, uh, in the end. I also think there's, there's this issue with this story that's really hard when you're doing it in a visual media in particular that I think that it can't be done super well because either the character does not go dark enough or they cannot be redeemed. Mm. And I think you, if you look at... You, you say that Star Wars is the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, but there's a whole contingent who goes, Anakin Skywalker doesn't deserve to be redeemed. He murdered a bunch of children. And I literally it, just, uh, I, I literally just was talking with some people on Facebook that I can imagine a conversation where Luke Skywalker is like, you know, I, I forgave him in the end. And some random Alderanian is like, oh, did you? Well, how freaking nice for you. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that you, you know, and you even look, you know, the, the uh, the aggregate for this being told super well and totally ripping this off by the way and then they it's it's nice they visually ripped it back off from it was it's the dark willow saga from x from x from buffy which is essentially this story something bad really happens and the problem that i always run into is the anakin turn the gene turn the willow turn the idea that You've done something bad. Now you're really bad. And then you have to turn like it's it's the, you know, oh, my gosh, I just stopped Palpatine from being murdered by Mace Windu. And in, in doing that, I ended up setting up Mace Windu to be killed by Palpatine. Didn't even kill him myself. I just said, stop. I but am now, now that I've done evil. that. I'll do everything bad. Like it's. And because you're limited in in the story they're going to tell, especially in a, in something like Star Wars or Buffy or X Men, where you're also trying to give lip service to the rest of an ensemble, like it just has to be. You don't have time for what should be an extended period of struggle as someone becomes like it's. So I think you I'm may be willing, right. I'm willing to bet that in real life, a fall from grace in real life very rarely happens around one crucial decision that is so impactful that you then decide to abandon all your morality. It happens because of little compromises that you make bit by bit, day by day, until one day, years later, you look back at yourself and realize where your journey has led you. In the case of the X-Men in particular, the other problem that you have is that this story is constantly told in every X-Men movie including this one with Magneto. Magneto oh, yeah, is in good a point. good Magneto is in a good place. Then something happens. Now he's really bad, but by the end he's sort of good again. That happened in this film? That happened in the last film? That happened in Days of Future Past? So the last 3 X-Men films has started with Magneto is good then he decides to be bad and then at the end he makes a decision to be good again yeah you're so right. let's i mean the, we can't talk about this film without talking about um two things i think one is its place in the x-men canon 
and the uh, reason that maybe we didn't go see it uh, and that many people didn't go see it is that this is the last one because of legal company purchase reasons this is the last x-men film and everyone knew that going in this is and it was never intended to be the finale of the x-men because disney bought fox and now the x-men will be part of the marvel cinematic universe when they get reintroduced so I think there's a feeling of, well, this doesn't matter anymore because it is not it is neither part of an ongoing story nor is it the end of the story that existed. It, it's, you know... That's interesting. They it, knew going in that what they were making was not canon anymore. Well, they, they we knew we knew going in to, to going to see it, I guess is my point. They did not know when they were making this, when they started making mm, this, that this is going to be the case. It was only kind of known in the last like two weeks of production. Yeah, this is going to be it. So this is like, do I read chapter 10 of a 20-page book that never gets finished? You know, it's interesting. You told me at one point how good Veronica Mars was. I said, is it? And you said, yes, it's wonderful, but I need to warn you. And I said, what? You said, well, first, the third season is not as good as the first two. I said, okay, fair enough. You said, the other thing you need to know is that it doesn't, it got canceled. It doesn't have an ending. They just stopped making them. And so you will never get an ending to the show. Now, luckily, Which reminds we had me, a movie I really need to watch season sh- four now. Yeah, the, there's been a movie and a season four, so you finally get it. And I did eventually watch the first two se- seasons of Veronica Mars. But it's you. Know, if you look at a lot of the shows, the serialized shows that have been made on TV lately, where they get people in for three seasons, but it's so highly serialized, and they just cut it off. Sarah Connor, the Sarah Connor Chronicles is a great example of that um, where you never quite got an ending of any kind. It was like left on this big giant cliffhanger. Um, mm-hmm. There's a feeling of, do I even need to read? You know, Here is a lackluster chapter 10 out of 20 in a story that will never finish. Do I need to go see it? Yeah, um, no, that's, there's really, there's something to be said for why start a story that you know is going to have an unsatisfying conclusion, it, like is going to have a, an incomplete conclusion. Uh, the only difference with Veronica Mars was that at least season one and season two, the way they finished their seasons was each season was a complete arc in and of itself. So you could have just essentially said, I'm going to read the first two Veronica Mars novels and never read the other ones. And I want to give credit to the the filmmakers that they at least gave you enough of a sense of finality in the film that you're yeah. kind of like, okay, well, I, I guess I guess this is where it ends then. I mean, ending <laughs> with, okay. there is, I mean, I can't, I'm hard pressed to think of a better way to end the X-Men arc than with Xavier and Magneto playing chess. Sure. I, I, it's, I love that this is the first time at the end of an X-Men movie we ever see Xavier and Magneto playing chess. Um, what a, what an interesting and strange idea. Maybe they should have done that more. Um, the other thing we I, have I to talk tell, about. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic right now. I'm being a little sarcastic in that you're right. It is a great way for the for, for the movie to end. But like so many things, like the Magneto arc, yes, that is a satisfying end to the film. We know that because we've because had that. Because it's been a, a satisfying, satisfying end to many other films. Yes, very true. <laughs> you know, um, uh, the second thing we need to talk about is the horrible reception to this film because i think while we can say and i think we're going to just say at the end of the film that the film is not you know we're going to have to list our favorite x-men films at the end of this podcast but um it is not a great x-men film but i think that and correct me if i'm wrong the the vehement hatred for this film 
that is was spewed online it is makes me wonder Dude. in today's day and age with social media with fandom being what it is is it possible for a film for a geek ip film to be received as anything other than a triumph or an absolute failure mixed reviews do they exist anymore because you're always going to have a core group of people who if they don't like something are going to not like it so vehemently that it will flood social media with that. Uh, the the loud voice of the extreme negative is amplified in a way that it never was before. And so because of that, uh, it's a lot harder to get a nuanced response out of, oh, okay, this movie didn't suck, but it also wasn't great. It was somewhere in between. There's there's very few in-between films anymore. Well, I, I agree with you. You know, we're on the verge of... Terminator Dark Fate about to come out and the reviews are starting to come out that this is the best Terminator since Terminator 2 which is great because you know what? I've liked all the Terminator films even the quote-unquote bad ones even recognizing how ridiculous like a movie like Genesis is I I've really enjoyed it um, and the trailers are starting to come out a friend of mine put out his favorite Terminator films from favorite to least favorite and at the end of that list he had um, he had Genesis as the worst and Dark Fate as the second worst of all the films, having not seen hmm. Dark Fate, having made up his decision, his mind that before this going film in. is going to this, this, fil- this film is going to suck. Excuse me and if I was ha- not clear. Ugh. Yeah. And I was like, dude, like, OK to have an opinion, but see the movie <laughs> like the the it's going to suck was already decided um the dark phoenix this the is, issue that dark this phoenix is terrible has to is say the, but rem- remember the good old days when only the religious right made up their films about movies they hadn't seen oh dude whoa hot take hot take from arthur on the totally <laughs> super podcast um uh the, the 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 statements of the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of endlight entertainment or geeks radio um <laughs> they, they reflect so, the views of one person in endlight entertainment and geek radio yeah um so <laughs> look dark phoenix is repetitive lackluster small but it doesn't crap the bed the way that apocalypse did it does no. not it does not not at all um there are things in the in the film that are enjoyable there there everybody gives a fairly good not everybody there's someone who doesn't we'll talk about it really quickly mostly everybody gives a a, a fairly good performance the the yeah the, the effects are credible the the there are no you know purple power the rangers second, the second half of the film really picked up the uh you know pretty much from the fight in new york city through the end it was uh there was a pretty good film yeah it's it's not bad. The question is, is it good? But it's not bad. But if you look at the reviews and the in the box office, like this is they're saying this is the failure of the X-Men. And it is a failure of the X-Men. I'm gonna put something forth and then we'll do a little character study. Um is this film a failure of the X-Men in that it shows the boundaries of the stories that can be told with the current iteration of the X-Men franchise. In that, I love what they do with Xavier. They do something new with him where he is he is not necessarily good anymore, but we're already doing something we've done with Gene. That's been done mm-hmm. before. Um, and it's not like and Xavier has was... gotten that same Xavier has gotten that same treatment in the comics. He has in the comics Xavier has made some decisions that are morally dubious at best. And so I'll put it out a, there: it's not a massive departure from the character. Yeah, I, I think that's the most interesting part of the film. But you know, the Scott and Gene thing we've seen before. The, I said before the Magneto thing we've seen. 
a bunch of times before. Like it just seems like like what we're doing is we're almost getting I don't want to say greatest hits, but a cover band greatest hits of everything the X Men does. Yeah, it's you know, the sense that they sh- just keep trying to do this storyline until they get it right. When maybe they should have just gone off and done something new. Yeah, but I think the question is: is can they do anything more new? Because Apocalypse was very new, and uh, you know, it's in terms of the characters though, as presented in this. You know, look, there's look, we got Nightcrawler doing cool Nightcrawler stuff, and look, here's here's Quicksilver. He's running in slow motion again, and Magneto is good, bad, good again, and look. Mm-hmm. They're lifting up trains. Boy, do they love to lift up trains in the X-Men. They lift up two trains in this film. There are a number of trains over the course of the X-Men films. I don't know what 20th Century Fox has against public transit. You know, (laughs) now I want somebody to do a super cut of every train in the X-Men film being lifted up. Because there are a few. (laughs) There are quite a few. Maybe Um, maybe set to the backdrop of the monkey's last train to Clarksville. That'd be amazing. Or the or the Thomas the Take Engine theme. Yes. Um, the, uh, so maybe what we've done is we've reached you know the 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 problem. Yeah. Uh, how do I put this? The problem with the X Men franchise is the greatest strength of the X Men franchise is that it's grounded in the real world. That it was all about being in the real world, and then mm-hmm. when you get further away from the real world, it, it seems nonsensical. While staying grounded in the real world with these characters, eventually you just get the same repetitive story over and over again. So mm-hmm. it is, you know, maybe look, this is the 10th film in the X-Men franchise and outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe you know, there, and James Bond. Find me another series that can can maintain a, a thing for 10 films. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it needs constant rethinking and rebooting. I mean, they, they did Star Wars by by, you know, jumping forward 30 years each time. So like it, it's mm-hmm. it is where it is. Let's do a little bit of talking about the characters. Let's uh, start, of course, yeah. with uh, with Sophie Turner as Jean Grey. Uh, I like her. What do you Sophie. think I, of I like her, her versus Grey. Famke Jensen? Um, I, I also liked Famke Jensen. Um, I mean, Sophie Turner had more to work with, I think. Uh, her descent and wrestling, like script wise, there was more for her there. So she was able to play it more. Um, she's Sophie Turner has never been the most uh, amazing actress to me, but she's always been really solid. The what she is good at playing is and we've seen her do this with Sansa Stark is she can both play the soft, weak, I'm scared, I don't know what's going on, to when you see her character make a decision to suddenly just become hard, uh, you know, hard as nails, cold as ice. She plays that real well. The, The dispassionate look on her face as she is dusting the aliens at the end, I felt worked pretty well. So, yeah. uh, Now, granted, now that I'm saying that, if the Phoenix Force was meant to be a, you know, sort of an energy and emotion of rage and passion, maybe dispassion, it's not the best choice for it. But all that being said, uh, I did not... I did not not like her performance. Yeah, I think that I did not enjoy Famke Jensen's performance as Dark Phoenix. Um, And I don't know how strong an actress she is, but I know that she could have pulled off the passionate thing if they had let her. I mean, look look at her in Goldeneye. She can she can Mm -hmm. do dark and passionate. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What Famke Jensen brought as opposed to Sophie Turner was a warmth, always a warmth uh, to what she was doing. So that you felt for her and you felt with her. And it was a lot easier to sympathize with her, to empathize with her Jean Grey. You know, it is also, you know, to give Sophie Turner 
a little bit of a pass. Fabio Jensen was also allowed to interact with other members of the X-Men with, you know, in positive ways, which Sophie Turner never is. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, she she does the cold thing. She I she dusts those aliens really really well. Um she does very well at holding up her hand and and making people die, but you know, I don't know what this movie has against helicopters too. Like maybe they just had the one CGI model. <laughs> um Yeah. Professor Xavier, uh, can I just say that James McAvoy is is an international treasure that is so underappreciated. I don't understand why this guy isn't the biggest star. He is great in this. Your thoughts? I think oh, my thoughts. Um, I think going off with that, my absolute favorite scene in the film was the conversation in the kitchen between Hank McCoy and Charles Xavier after Raven's death. Like, I'm watching that scene. It's being played by two phenomenal actors. I'm like, I would pull this scene to use in an acting class. Like, uh, to have, uh, you know, if you want if you want a scene with good material and good dialogue uh, that can basically give rise to, to good uh, amounts of emotion, that was a great one. You know, I love that we get empathetic Charles at the beginning when he still has his hair we've got morally dubious sort of his ego gone out of control charles we have a charles by the end who is who is again more subdued and has learned his lesson he really he has an arc throughout the film that's of course what we want to see in Mm -hmm. our characters is an arc and an arc that makes sense uh he he does thing you know the idea that he thought that the x-men were going to be hated forever and now they're lauded and he has access to the to the president and power corrupts like i love that but I love that he's still innately good and he finds his goodness through the pain he goes through. I mean, that's 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 good character work. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'll give that to Simon Kinberg. He he did he did great with that and and James McAvoy. I've yet to see him not not do what is called on him to do. Um yeah. uh, give this guy an Oscar, for goodness sake. Um Nicholas Holt, you already put it up. Um the performance is great, but boy, does this take a big fat crap on the character. Yeah. Um like it's you know, if at least you know, at least Jean Grey has the excuse of I've been inhabited by a horrible, malevolent force. Since when did Beast decide, hey, I'm just going to kill one of the X-Men? That's true. Are we okay with this? Were you okay with this? Or were you like, what the hell? I, it, it's You put it that way, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's not keeping in Beast's character. But it didn't it didn't jar me in the moment, but I I think that's because I was in a place watching the film where I was I was a step back enough that uh yeah, I didn't give it too much thought, but you're absolutely right. No, it jarred me a lot um because we've been watching these films and Beast has been the heart of these films. Like if I've watching this as part 4 of the dark of the first class uh series. We watch him and Raven at the beginning. I understand he's mad that Raven's dead, but just like Raven's dead and I'm going to make sure we kill Gene for it. It's just like he was one of my favorite characters as this series has gone on and this decision to make him just I'm going to I'm going to murder Gene. I'm just going to murder her and we're yeah, all no, sort of okay sense. with it is you know, everything bad that happens with Magneto is because of Beast. Beast caused it and he caused it on purpose. And, you know, is that irredeemable? He has no excuse for what he's done. None. Um, It's a problem. Let's talk about some nothing characters. Uh, Any thoughts about Quicksilver, Storm, or Nightcrawler? Uh, I, they didn't use Quicksilver a ton, which I would have liked to see more of him. Uh, I loved both of the actors who played Nightcrawler and Storm. I mean, they didn't have a ton to work with. You know, ironically, the thing you mentioned about Beast, uh, them doing a real departure from the character there, I kind of felt like they did a bit of a departure from, uh, Nightcrawler's character too at the end. Like, I could see the arc that they were taking him through. I, if it were any other character, the seeing what is essentially still a young kid being surrounded by death 
uh, I, I liked the scene where he's basically holding this soldier that he's never met, the soldier who just imprisoned him a moment before, and is like, no, 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 please don't die, please don't die, and him snapping, and then going like full cro- teleportation Krav Maga on all the aliens. Like, all of that's great for a, for a character arc. I wasn't sure if it really, it, it didn't feel like my Nightcrawler, but on the other hand, that's the Nightcrawler I know mostly from the comics. So, yeah, but, I, all that being said, I thought the actor played it quite well. In a reboot, yeah, I do too. Um, in a reboot of the X Men, I would love to see the Nightcrawler that I knew, because uh, yeah. I still haven't. You know, the the, the, the Nightcrawler, the, the swashbuckler, the swashbuckler style, like who's swashbucklery uh, on the one hand, and also deeply religious. Yeah, if you look at the the Nightcrawler's portrayed in Excalibur, particularly when he's drawn by Alan Davis and Claremont's writing him or Alan Davis is writing him, there is always, not always, but always this smile on his face. He is having mm-hmm. a great time. He loves to fight. He's a scrapper and he loves to fight and swing and do acrobatics and beat the bad guys, but he doesn't he doesn't murder them. Um and he and, it, and then it's the and then when his heart breaks when his heart breaks, your heart breaks with him because you realize and, and they point this out a lot, the swashbuckling is a facade to hide the pain that he has that he can't be like everyone else for which he finds comfort through his faith in God. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, instead, he's an incredibly rich, complex character. Yeah. And, and, and from time to time, I would call him my favorite character in the comics. Um, but that's not kind of shown here. Um, Ty Sheridan is Cyclops. I like Ty Sheridan. I really loved him in Ready Player One. Um, and I bring a lot of goodwill from Ready Player One into this. Um, and I bring will, goodwill forward because I also have liked Cyclops throughout the series. And I like I like movie Cyclops better than I like comic Cyclops, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. So I bring a lot of that forward. I think that he's riding on the fumes of my goodwill in here because I think he has less to do in my in the actual film than he does in my mind because on, on rewatching the film i'm like gosh i really wish this guy had a lot more to do he should be key uh, he's kind of enough that yeah he's he's actually you could remove you could x out his character ah, x out you could uh you could remove his character from the storyline and it would remain largely unaffected the relationship between him and gene is such a hand wave that it might as well not be there you could have in the comics the relationship between scott and gene is the absolute driving emotional crux behind Jean's internal struggle. But in the film, Jean's, her connection with Scott is maybe we feel it a little bit more strongly than her connection with everyone else. Um, The, like, Jean has enough family connection to struggle with, with other characters. And so really, they had one scene with Scott and Jean and, you know, him saying, oh, you know, promise me you'll always come back to me. But that was, that was, that was cookie cutter movie, movie work. Jessica Chastain I believe her character's name is Huck and these aliens um huge problem for me there were never mm-hmm. aliens in X-Men in in the movies they're out of the blue everyone's just like oh cool aliens are here like nobody's like holy shit there are aliens what yeah like it's it's yeah the most we get such is such a departure wait, what are you yeah yeah and then there and then there are a bunch of CGI baddies who like to dress up as random security guards like you would see on Arrow um mm-hmm. who it's a huge problem plot wise I think that Jessica Chastain is terrible, um, which is a shame because watch Molly's game. She is astounding as an actress. I just don't think she's bringing anything to this. Um, yeah, she's she's a nothing character from a nothing bunch of bad guys who were supposed to be the Shi'ar, actually. It was supposed to be the Shi'ar, and it was supposed to be Angeline Jolie as Lalandra, and they were going to be the Shi'ar, and instead... Oh, they were actually going to go back them... to the original source? Oh, that would have been great. Yeah, that was the idea. Uh, 
Because um, the, like, so before seeing this, I was actually talking with someone else, and the reason why, I remember before Infinity War, thinking, okay, cool, they've got Thanos involved with this, but, I mean, are they really going to take it to the same galactic level that the Infinity Saga is in the comics? And at first I was thinking, well, surely they're not going to do that, because... Up until that point, there was sort of this, no, you, that's not what you do in film. You try, to you try to take what's in the comics and quote-unquote ground it. Whereas instead, and I feel this is where Infinity War really succeeded, they said, oh no, the strength of this storyline is its sheer galactic level, so we're going to lean hard into that. To the same extent, it's easy to forget just how much of the Dark Phoenix saga takes place in space dealing with alien races. Jean Grey is killed by hurling herself in front of a space laser in an essential like moon that is that is like one big gladiatorially arena that the Shi'ar set up for a trial. I mean, it's it's pretty galactic. And there's a there's something I, I, they, I I've listened Go ahead. Well, they, and so I think they were trying to do that. Uh honestly, I I, I would prefer a Dark Phoenix storyline that deals with aliens in space as opposed to one that we had in X3, which was just purely grounded on Earth. Uh, I think the I don't think it needs to be pure. Enough, I, I don't think but, it needs to be but purely I don't think grounded they went far on enough with this. Yeah. Yeah. My problem is this is is either they didn't go far. I kind of want to go the other way and go. I'm OK with the Phoenix Force being from space, but there's enough mutants on Earth. For this to be a, a problem, if it just became she is dangerous to Earth and all mutants, good and bad, have to fight against Jean, and then you have Scott running around trying to save her and a few X-Men trying to mm. save her while the rest of the world is just like, we got to battle her. If we make Jean the Thanos. Yeah, you could and, do that. Absolutely. Um, then that is something that you could end up doing. Um, because I've, I've read in, in number, no, a number of things. So we will accept Harry Potter, but if suddenly robots were in Harry Potter, we're not going to be cool with it. Or it's if like hobbits saying, show everyone, up. Every movie gets one gimme, but you can't have two. Yeah, and we already have mutants. Mutants are something we already... So if we go, hey, there is a force and the force has shown up, then okay, we can move on from there. Um, but I just felt like it, it is to create this weird external threat in addition to Gene so that we could have battle sequences with guys in security. It just was not mm -hmm. necessary yeah. and not super well done. Now, you could um, say that Avengers was... Avengers, they added aliens to what was already a superhero film, but so much of that film was devoted to, oh my God, what? There's aliens? Wait, we need to create a superhero force specifically to deal with this threat. It was yeah. not... Like, that wasn't a gimme. That's what the movie was about, was bringing yeah, aliens absolutely. into what had previously been just a superhero world. Magneto in this film again Michael Fassbender doing a great job you know Michael Fassbender mm -hmm. is is a great actor um, but just a lot like Beast it's just like what and you pointed out in the summary he tried to kill Raven before too and he's just like what she killed Raven she's gonna die we're gonna yeah, kill if there her. was anyone who might be able to understand a bit more of an ambiguity of it it would have been Magneto yeah and and like yeah I understand he's upset and heartbroken but he just gave a speech about how Killing people doesn't end the pain of the loss that you feel. He literally has a speech about that. So then and he's then going he to go and then turns around and tries to kill Gene to end the pain of the loss that he feels. He's like, I'm going to kill her. And then, and then Xavier's like, yeah, but it's a bad idea. And he's like, okay, yeah, you're right. It's just like, well, that's great because no Xavier's like, it's a bad Xavier is just like, he starts to say it's a bad idea. And Eric's like, no, don't give us another speech. It never works. And then Xavier's like, but it's a bad idea. And he's like, okay, you're right. Your speech worked. Yeah. And uh, again, I feel like Magneto and his mutants exist. So we can have an action scene in New York. 
because mm-hmm. otherwise he's not necessary for this film at all, except that you need an, an Omega level mutant who can fight with Gene. And the way he chooses mm-hmm. to fight with Gene is who can bring down the helicopter, which is yeah. the silliest scene in the entire movie. Take If you turn it down and you take the music away, it's just them going <laughs> with their hands out. It's and they're both giving their all, but it's it's dumb. It looks it dumb. It requires a lot of commit it requires a lot of commitment and trust from an actor to be to be asked to do that. Um and let's end, speaking of dumb, with an absolutely phoned in terrible performance by Jennifer Lawrence. Um she's awful in this film. She looks so bored, even when she's arguing with 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 Xavier and yeah, she has the terrible maybe we should be called X Women. There's nothing. I see nothing. I, I'm she more didn't your family, bother me Jane. as much in this film as she did in Apocalypse, actually. Oh, she. I felt like she just didn't want to be there. She clearly didn't want to be in the makeup. The the makeup, if you look at the makeup in the first one and the makeup in this one, I don't just mean like her being naked. I mean, even on her face, there's almost nothing on her. Her skin's Oh, no, the makeup blue, was, I, I agree. The makeup was noticeably, I felt, worse in this one. Uh, however, her skin's too her blue, her scene, hair's too red, and her acting is too flat. Um, and I, I like died, I, I got I, no. I got I to go on nothing. record and say I, I really liked her death scene. Uh, I thought it was um, very well emotionally played. And and for me, one, I didn't feel like she played it that well. And two, the fact that her and Beast makeup is so bad, and so the death scene is these two, you know, Smurfs looking at each other. I, I was taken out. I was like, this is dumb. And I never felt like it was dumb, but it just felt dumb. Um, ultimately, we have to ask ourselves the question: um, uh, Is this film? a bad movie and the last thing we need to say because we are a little short on time but the last thing i want to say about the film is this film cost as much to make as apocalypse or days of future past this was Mm. still a 200 million dollar movie and if you think about it this has the same cast as days of future past minus hugh jackman and patrick stewart and ian mckellen and it just seems so small it seems so unbelievably small for a film that's supposed to be the largest in scope. Yeah. Um, it feels it, does, it, it feels you know, very I was contained. Said, I said to my wife when I was watching, it was like, even the way it's shot, if you look at how many times you have an action scene, but the, how many times the action scene is two characters standing in one spot with their hand out and then somebody added some CGI. Um, uh, this I said to, to my wife, I said, this would be a a perfectly acceptable episode of the flash. Yeah. Because the final, the final combat, the final combat for the most part takes place in a train. It was a good combat, but that by its very nature is an enclosed space, which enforces that sense of small scale. Whereas instead you think of Endgame, where the final combat took place on this massive sweeping plane with massive armies clashing against each other. That is epic scope. Or think about the combat in the in Days of Future Past. Or even, dare I say, Apocalypse, which is not a great film, but cost as much. And the combat's like, it's all over the place. And this yeah. is just... Um, so it's not thrilling visually. It's not thr- thrilling script-wise. It's not thrilling character-wise. Some of the acting's not where it should be. But it's not, I do want to say it's not embarrassing. It's just lesser. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so the last thing I want to do before we go, um, uh, first, let's say uh, on a scale of, of one to five copies of the same story, where would you rate X-Men Dark Phoenix? 2.75. Um, 2.75. Yeah. The, so my metric is always a three is it was fine. I would walk out feeling eh, I didn't waste my money. Uh, and I run and I'm aware of the fact that I actually rated 
Apocalypse higher than this. But I think it, because Apocalypse had a bigger sense of scale and scope, I would have walked out of the theater saying, okay, well, at least I got a little bit of transportation into a like, larger world. Uh, this one, it, it's not a bad film. In many ways, it's, it is a fine film. I think the I'm docking at the extra 0.25 because the storyline needed to be such so much bigger in scope, and I didn't, and I felt a little bit let down by that. I'm also going to give it a 2.75 because a three is supposed to be average, and this is slightly less than average. Um, and I don't know where that's going to rank up next to how I've rated other films. Um, I have talked before about the the value of bad reviews, and this is a film where. I am thankful for the bad reviews. And this is the film I will hold up as being why I look at reviews before films sometimes. Because it sets I was told this was going to be the worst. Just the worst. And so I was like, okay. And I walked in with my arms folded going, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm an X-Men fan and I have a you know, superhero podcast, so I better go see this. And I unfolded my arms as the film went on. I was like, all right. All right, yeah, this is okay. This is actually, this is not like, this isn't as bad as everyone says. And so I kind of walked away and, and it was a lot like Subway. People like crap on Subway a lot. They're like, oh, Subway. Oh, I've never eaten Subway. Uh, you know, can you imagine if you had never had Subway before? And yes, you, there are great sandwich shops you could go to, but you've never had Subway before. And someone said, yeah, Subway tastes like, you know, it's crap. And then you finally go into a Subway and you're like, okay, yeah, just give me an Italian BMT. And they do. And you're like, oh, this Perfectly is... fine sandwich. You're, this you're is a sandwich. A, you know what? Let's say it. X-Men Dark Phoenix is the Subway sandwiches of the X-Men saga. Yeah, it's it's fine. I I don't know if I'll... I'll probably watch it again when I show the films to my kid. I might I, I might watch... Like, I might skip Apocalypse. Um, but the, the last thing we have to do uh, with the film is we have to rank the non-Wolverine X-Men films. And we'll do this again when we finally have the Wolverine films to add in. But of the seven X-Men films, um, and I don't put you on the spot here, so I'll go first and give you a second to sort of get your, get your, your films in order in your head. Um, how do you rank these films? And I'm going to start here and I'm going to go from best to worst. I'm going to say uh, X2, followed by Days of Future Past. Uh, no, st- scratch that. I'm going to say X-Men First Class, followed by X2, followed by Days of Future Past. And we have those films. And then followed a bit behind by uh, by X-Men The Last Stand. Uh, not X-Men, sorry, by the original X-Men. Then we have sort of a, a precipitous fall after those four. And then we have, um, I'm going to say X-Men Dark Phoenix, then X-Men Last Stand. So I think that says definitively for me, this film managed to outpace the one it was replacing at least. And then another precipitous fall where Apocalypse lays at the very bottom of the heap. So I'm going to say once again, uh, First Class, X2, Days of Future Past, the original X-Men, uh, Last Stand, Dark Phoenix, and then Apocalypse. What about you, sir? Days of Future Past, X2, X-Men First Class, Original X-Men, X-Men Apocalypse, X-Men Dark Phoenix, X3, Last Stand. Okay, so so our films are in the same sections as each other. They're just arranged slightly They're just differently. in different orders in the same section. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a marked difference. I actually, and part of this might be a nostalgic factor, um... I include sort of the original X-Men in that upper echelon uh, because, yes, while it doesn't hold up as well, uh, especially compared to superhero movies now, for what it was at the time, it was groundbreaking. 
uh, in so, so many ways. And, uh, you know, and some of the acting and character work in it is really great. So I'd still, like, X-Men to me, the original X-Men film is more than just a fine X-Men film. It is a good X-Men film. Not as good as the other three that are in that echelon, but it's still up there. But, yeah, for me, the big jump happens between original X-Men and uh, the bottom three. I am sad to see this group go. Um, uh, I feel like you could have done more with them. Uh, I, I almost wish I could see... A rebooted X-Men franchise with all the same actors would be really an interesting idea. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I would love to see... I can't imagine someone better than Fassbender as a young Magneto, and I can't remember somebody... Oh, gosh, yeah. I can't think of somebody better than... Then McKellen is an old Magneto. I can't yeah, imagine somebody Disney tries better than to, Patrick's... Like, if Disney just... I mean, if Disney recasts, which they probably will when they bring in the X-Men, uh, if they do, if they just recast everything, those poor actors, they're going to be the third people within one generation having to play those same characters. Just like poor Tom Holland, who's what, doing okay. just fine. Who's doing just fine. That's true. But that, um, that's despite what he was set up against. So as for what's next, um, we are going to try. You know, we keep saying we're going to do Joker. We're going to try. It's hard to get out to the to the movies these days, guys. I got to admit, um, there's a bunch of great stuff that I, I can't wait to get to. Of course, we have the Wolverine films. The Fantastic Four films are lingering out there. The original Superman films. There's uh, the Dark Knight trilogy. There's there's a lot uh, that we still uh, have have to cover in Totally Super and more and more and more coming. Huge news. Of course, you can count on us to also give you the Rise of Skywalker the same way we did with Last Jedi um, when that finally does come. Um, uh, but well, we, we, are, we didn't uh, do we didn't do Last Jedi. We did Solo. You did Last Jedi with Solo. Well, the, the way the, the way we did Solo because we can't not do Star Wars because Star Wars is yeah we can't not. What, what are we supposed to do? Not talk about Star Wars? Pfft, I don't think yeah. so. Um, so, uh, so there's huge stuff coming out. Um, and it might be just about time to do like another like news one too, where we just talk about all the developments in the superhero world. But uh, you'll find out next time. Uh, so stay tuned to our feed. Come talk to us on Facebook. Please come talk to us on Facebook. We love it. We love it when you do. Um, and if you uh, haven't subscribed, subscribe. Tons of shows. If this is your first one listening, tons of other ones. Um, and come join us. Come talk to us. We love. Uh, if love you enjoy Totally Super Podcast, then subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. It's very beautiful. Yeah, that, was, that, that, was, that was my NP. That was my NPR voice. For now, my name is Justin, and my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 